Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ITPS I'm for Fun podcast with Dennis Spiegel. Uh, I'm Pam Westerman, president of ITPS, and we're honored that you've joined us today live. Uh, before we begin, let me just remind you of a, a couple of items. First, if you have any issues with audio or visual, or you have any other general comments to pass along, please let us know by using the chat box. Uh, near the end of our time together today, we're going to do our best to address any questions that come in. So as you have questions you would like answered, please place those in the Q&A box found on the Zoom toolbar. And we'll do our best to answer those as time allows. But just know if we don't get to your question live, we will follow up with you after our podcast. And with that, I will turn things over to our host, Dennis Spiegel, founder and CEO of ITPS, who will introduce today's topic and our very special guest today. Again, thanks for joining us. And Dennis, I'll turn it to you. Okay, well, thank you, Pam. <clears throat> and I want to welcome everyone. I want to say good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, because we have people on from all around the world uh, listening and, and viewing us today. Uh, I'd like to start with our hot topics, uh, just a couple of quick items before I introduce our guest. Uh, first of all, everyone knows that the COVID vaccine has been approved here in the United States and some other countries. Uh, looks like we're going to get about 2.9 million doses during the first round. And that vaccine has shown a 95% effective rate. Uh, like most countries, uh, health and health workers are going to get the uh, get the first doses. So that's very important. And that is really, uh, truly great news and what <clears throat> we in the industry and the world have been waiting for. It's also been approved in the UK, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, the European Union, uh, still awaiting approval, and it's expected around the end of December, the 1st of January. And it looks like that France, uh, Germany, Spain, and Italy uh, won't likely start their vaccinations until uh, the early part of January. Uh, and it looks like Mexico and Canada are already uh, approved and starting their distribution now. Uh, looks like there's going to be over 7.38 billion vaccine doses contracted for around the world. So by the end of 2020, uh, millions of people uh, will be uh, inoculated. And by the end of 21, it's going to be billions. So great news from that standpoint. On the U.S. travel uh, scene, uh, the holiday experience is is actually expected to be down. AAA came out yesterday predicting that 34 million uh, fewer visitors, uh, fewer uh, Americans will head out for the holiday trip this year. Uh, in Florida, it looks like there's going to be about 1.7 fewer people traveling, and that would be down about 30% from last year. Uh, however, the bright side is uh, on the Orlando uh, scene, uh, it's betting on its position as the hotspot for travel this year. And it looks like that this is uh, going to be paying off, particularly for the Disney parks, which are announced that they're actually selling out at their 35% capacity level. The Magic Kingdom uh, is sold out for December through the December 24th through the th uh, 31st. And it looks like the other parks are going to be sold out as well. So uh, yesterday, uh, Disney uh, put out some more numbers. They indicated they've lost uh, about $7 billion this year. Uh, but uh, with that, uh, there was an uptick in its stock 
yesterday and this morning before we came on the air, I looked and it was up again. Uh, in fact, uh, it's uh, it's at an all-time high. So uh, I think that's a good bellwether and bodes well for the whole industry. As we know, Disney is a great friend of the industry and a, and a bellwether for us. So um, one of the contributions to the uh, to that uptick, or the contribution, I should say, is the uh, streaming that they introduced uh, uh, prior to or right at the time of COVID. Uh, it wasn't as a result of COVID, but it was in the planning process. So uh, timing is everything, as we say. So uh, great news. So with the vaccine on the horizon, uh, we think that uh, we're going to see uh, uh, see our industry uh, get back to uh, hopefully normal uh, very shortly. Over in Europe, uh, some news. Netherland Parks closed yesterday, and they announced until mid-January. Uh, the German Parks, our friends there, still remain closed at least until uh, January 10th. And in England, most of the parks are closed, but there are some that are open. So uh, it's been a it's been a really a, a crazy ride, as we all know, <clears throat> but we're uh, we're getting through it. So with those topics uh, uh, presented, let me uh, let me get on to uh, to our first my first guest today, my next guest actually, Richard Zimmerman. Richard uh, is a longtime friend of mine. We've known each other about thirty years. Um, he has really a, a unique background uh, with over thirty years uh, in the leisure and hospitality business, and I've always felt that Richard is uh, one of those people in our industry who really gets it all uh, from the financial requirements uh, to the operational aspects of, a, of running a successful park and a successful group. And that's why he's in the position he's in today. R Rich has always uh, been able and demonstrated his ability to blend uh, these dynamic forces uh, very successfully in uh, his park operations, whether being a general manager or the president and CEO, as he is now of the Cedar Fair Park. So um, he gets it and it shows. And um, I think we have, uh, we have great things coming out of Cedar Fair and we're gonna hear about that uh, from Richard. Uh, just a little more background before he joined the amusement industry, he was with the uh, uh, Paramount uh, organization Paramount Communications, and uh, he served as their uh, financial uh, VP of analysis for what's uh, one of the greatest operations in the world, as far as I'm concerned, the uh, Madison Square Gardens division. And uh, it was his job there to interface strategic planning into operational execution and profitability, which he's carried forward. So, uh, Richard, Welcome today. Thank you for joining me. And uh, we've got a wonderful uh, uh, number of guests on today from all over the world. And they're anxious to hear what you've got to say. Take a minute and then we'll dive into some questions. Well, Dennis, first, thanks for having me on. It's always great to see you and get a chance to catch up. Second, I'll say what I always say when I start some of our conversations, which is I hope everybody in the audience is staying safe and doing well in these times. Uh, and, and, you know, taking care of their family. So great to be with you. Happy to have a chance to talk about what we do every day and what we love doing every day. So back to you. 
Well, it's been a little little difficult, as I said, and you and I chatted prior to this, and we know it. But uh, uh, why don't you give us a little overview, Rich, if you would, of of what the COVID impact has really had on Cedar Fair. Uh, we know it's been tough on the numbers and things, but just give us that that high level view of what uh, what you've seen and what you've had to deal with, and then we'll we'll dive a little deeper in the conversation. You know, coming into 2020, Dennis, I think Cedar Fair and the industry had great momentum. Everything was looking really good. Uh, I think the the consumers were responding to the the value of our experience. Everybody was doing well. Balance sheets were healthy. Uh, Folks were coming out to see all of the parks uh, across the country. So as I think about Cedar Fair, we've never been in a better position going into a season. You know, we had a strong season pass sales, which is our bellwether, little little north of 50% of our attendance comes from season passes. It's a big part of, yes. of how we penetrate our, our markets. But also you get into January, February, we would strong, Knott's Berry Farm is our only year-round park. It had a very strong January and February. So we felt good coming into this year. We're, you know, a lot of momentum, a lot of, a lot of good, good engagement with our guests. Then COVID struck. And it, it struck quickly in March. We had to pivot quickly. You know, one of the things I've always loved, and you and I have talked about this, about our business, be it Cedar Fair or the industry, is we have a very resilient business model. Well, no business model is built to withstand having no revenues coming in and completely shut down. So, you know, right. our, our team quickly pivoted, as everybody in the industry did, uh, made sure that we addressed our liquidity needs. We went to the capital markets and took care of that. But more importantly, you know, our folks worked very closely with state and local uh, authorities to make sure we could figure out how we could reopen safely and when we could reopen safely, where we would fit in, in the reopening plans of each of the jurisdictions. So yeah. we're, you know, we're able to work closely with the industry peers. I have to say, Dennis, I think, I think the, the springtime may have been our industry's finest moment. The cooperation am, amongst all the major players and, and everybody in the industry to establish those standards, working closely with IAPA working closely with our peers. I think the really important thing to, get, to, to note is that the industry came together to establish these protocols and procedures. And that really allowed us then to present a united front, establish high standards, and then reopen our parks, which we got the chance to do you know, early to mid-summer. Some, some, some others in the industry got open a little bit earlier. And what yeah. I'm most proud of is you know, not only did the guests react and we're getting great great reaction from our guests in terms of guest satisfaction. They're very thankful we're open. But on the on the health front, we've not had a single case contact trace back to us, even though we've done about two and a half million visitors in, in some way, shape or form. Uh, so I'm really proud of what the team has done, but I'm also think it was one of the industry's finest moments. And, and I think that's important to note. Well, I think uh, I think your point uh, that latter point is well taken because that's pretty much been the message throughout the industry that we still are one of the safest places to be on mm-hmm. the planet. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, up through this week, I haven't seen any COVID-related cases tied back through the tracing to theme parks, whether it's destination or the regional park. So I think we've done an amazing job. You've done an amazing job with the company of really tracking, tracing, and implementing these uh, these issues. One of, one of the things I wanted to uh, ask you, there's a lot of things, but one is, uh, why don't you talk a little bit, if you would, please, Rich, about the uh, connectivity and the support that uh, you get uh, 
from your guest. I mean, we've seen over and over through the years when there's information about Cedar Fair out in the marketplace that your guests uh, support and react very positively. And that's not just something that happens. So how has that been cultivated through the years? You know, when I think of Cedar Fair, one of the things I enjoy about our approach is, is we're a house of brands. So Cedar Fair was built through a series of acquisitions where we acquired high quality brands in, in really attractive markets. So when you think about the heritage tradition, you're in Cincinnati, the heritage tradition attached to Kings Island or Cedar Point or Knott's Berry Farm. Mm-hmm. We span multi-generational appeal to our customers and our customers have what I call a life cycle. They'll come to us with their families when they're really young kids. They'll come with their friends when they're teens. They'll bring their dates to us as a young adult. And then when they get married and have kids and start their own families, they want to share that experience. So we occupy a very unique place in, in the community, and it really spans generations. So as I think about our appeal and what we focus on, it's really making sure we stay engaged with our customer. You know, through this whole pandemic, we've tried to stay engaged with our customers, engaged with our employees, and engaged with our communities really important that we have that, that strong connectivity. I think it's been one of the, the reasons that, that the business model has been resilient. I don't think, and I say this all the time to folks we talk to on, on Wall Street, that the industry gets enough credit for the stability of the revenue, the top line revenues, and uh-huh. the customer loyalty that, that really drives that. Yeah, well, it's, it, it's phenomenal. As we know, over 375 million people went to theme parks back in uh, 2019. And I've always said, uh, what is America's real pastime? It's, it's theme parks. And uh, they love us. Uh, generationally, that's been shown. The millennials, who are an uh, interesting group to research and deal with, they love us. And they grew up with us. And they come back. And they want to they want to participate in the park. So that, that's really uh, one of, I think, our hallmarks that we, we, uh, we are so strong. Uh, capital expansion. It's been a tough one for everybody. Uh, we've watched the biggest players and we watched the mom and pop players they have to adjust, call audibles, uh, postpones, cancels, uh, delays. And, uh, you know, here in Cincinnati, uh, you spent a lot of money on something that's right behind you, I believe, the Orion, <laughs> and uh, uh, which is a great coaster. And uh, I know that uh, Mike Koontz uh, and his team and, 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 and corporate had to have a lot of discussion on, should we open it? Should we wait? Uh, in some markets, uh, maybe that's good and some are delaying and some markets opening may be good. What's the overall feeling and what do you see rich for capital uh, expansion over the next couple of years? Because uh, the manufacturers have told us the pipeline is a little thin right now compared to what it has been for the last 10 years. You know, I think it's a great question, Dennis. And, you know, as I think about again, going into 2020 with strong momentum, we were really pleased with our capital lineup. In our business, both for Cedar Fair and the industry, capital, new capital, new attractions really help keep the, the experience fresh. More and more, you saw us, and you saw us start to articulate a pivot from bigger steel, which, which we put in a lot of our parks, to more experiential yeah. entertainment. So we're in the midst of that shift to start with. 
our 2020 capital lineup, you referenced Orion, that was the biggest product we, we, uh, we built this year. And we were able to open that in July when we opened Kings Island. But because of COVID and because of the pandemic, we couldn't open a lot of the attractions that we wanted to either because the parks didn't open. Uh, we had a number of pieces of water park product that were going in this year or because with the restrictions, it really didn't make sense that to, we couldn't do what we had planned. We had planned uh -huh. 150th anniversary celebration at Cedar Point, 100th anniversary celebration at Knott's Berry Farm. And both yeah. those parks, it didn't make sense with the COVID restrictions in place for us to roll that out this year. So we've taken all of those items and, and now we'll debut them in 2021. So what was going to be new for 2020 is now gonna be new for 2021, even Orion, Given, given the limited operation Kings Island had from July through the end of the year, it will still be new and attractive to a lot of the folks in the Cincinnati marketplace. So yeah, Mike and his team are looking forward to, to reopening uh, in 2021 and getting everybody out to ride Orion, which I have to say is one of the best coasters I've ever ridden. So yeah, it's, you know, a great coaster. I, it's a great coaster. But, but more broadly, Dennis, I, I, think, I think about capital and investing in the business as the lifeblood of the business. I think we, we need to do it how much and, and when and, and how you invest in an individual park versus everything overall. I think that that's driven by the strategies that we have. But I do <laughs> think, and, and I talk about this all the time, we got to keep creating more value for our guests. That price value equation is so important. We have within a range gotten it so right, not only at Cedar Fair, but throughout the industry. The value we create is an experience that you can't get down the street. It's not replaceable. We do things to a scale that, that, are, that can only be done on a couple hundred acres and can only be done when you've got something that, that's built up over 40 or 50, or in the case of Cedar Point, 150 years. And we know too, Rich, that, that, that I, I've used that price value analogy for 40 years now. Uh, back when I was at Kings Dominion, a park you mm -hmm. ran for, how many years did you run, KD? Um, about a decade. Yep. About a decade. Yeah. And uh, we started talking about price value back then because uh, we knew that if you took the cost of a ticket back then, even what it was, um, and you divided it up by the number of hours that the guest and the family stayed, it was the best value out there. You didn't compare to a movie. It didn't compare to a sporting mm -hmm. event or a concert or anything else. It was a great, great value. And today that same thing remains. So, you know, what's uniquely different about us is I look forward and, and I have to look backwards first to look forward in terms of how we think about capital. <clears throat> We've gotten so many things done under, under over the last 10 years or so. First, under Matt, we met the CEO before me, uh, sure. my, close part, my close partner as I was COO. And you know, we invested in, in, in a great friend. But we've invested in things like Wi-Fi in our parks. We've invested in upgrading our food and beverage facilities upgrading our food and beverage staff, the culinary talent. We've invested in our case, what makes us uniquely different within the regional space is we, we have hotels and accommodations. It's a big part of who we are. We like being in that business. And we've gone in and refreshed many of our properties, including the historic hotel breakers that sits on the Cedar Point Beach. So when I think about all those things and what we've gotten accomplished in, in the past, Dennis, I look forward and go, I think we've got an opportunity and, and, a, and a responsibility to invest in the recovery, make sure we're doing the things that, that mom and, and, and the families want us to do. You know, mom yeah. cares that, that the site is fresh. Mom cares about the restrooms not only being clean, but up to date. So, 
You're going to see us invest in the experience. That'll take a lot of, that'll mean a lot of different things and different site by site. Uh, but as we look to invest, we want to freshen up the experience and make sure that not just that we're a place to ride rides, we're a place to come and do things that you can't get anywhere else. You know, we're really, we really talk about immersive experiences. That's why we really made the strategic pivot to the limited duration events. You talked about some of the destination players. They've been doing large scale events for a lot of years. We have yes. really found as we've expanded our calendar with now six or six of our parks, plus uh, Knott's Berry Farm being the seventh, doing a winter holiday event. You know, back when you and I first started uh, stepping into this world, most of the parks closed by early October. Now our biggest month of the year is October with Halloween. And increasingly, we see grandparents and grandkids coming to our winter holiday events in November and December. So we stretch the calendar in a good way. We maintain better engagement with our guests. We're providing more value and, you know, we call it our seasons of fun umbrella, all pun intended. But if we can give somebody a reason to come out in all four seasons of the years with events, with new attractions opening up in the springtime, water parks opening up in the summer, that gives them more reasons to buy a season pass. And as we look at how we've built our season pass program over the last several years, we know that the, the, the more times you come during a year, the more likely you are to renew. So the more we can get somebody to visit, the more we can get them to renew, that's good for our business. And, we, and it lets us provide more value to the guests. Well, I think you guys just did something really interesting that sent a real message to the industry uh, two weeks ago. You announced the, uh, the $27 million uh, Camp Cedar project mm -hmm. at, mm -hmm. uh, at Kings Island. And as, as we've seen <laughs> since March, uh, never, probably in the last 30 years, more RVs and campers mm -hmm. have been sold and people are getting back to nature. And I think that's, that was a, a, a really strategic and marvelous call on your part to do that. Uh, I'd like for you to talk to our guests a little bit about that. And are you going to expand that into the other parks where it's necessary? And let me just say one more thing. You guys have done a great job of building out of park revenue, whether it's the breakers through your renovation of that over the last few years and other, other uh, programs you've instituted at some of the parks, Carowinds, et cetera. Uh, you've done a great job of that. So is that going to be uh, uh, something that we see more of in the future? You know, as I said a little bit, it's a great question, Dennis. As I said a little bit earlier, you know, the accommodation segment is very important to us. We view it as a strategic play. You know, we think it, it does two things. It expands our length of stay. So people who come and stay in our hotels or our campgrounds spend more time at the park. And because they spend more time at the park, we get a greater share of wallet. They're going to come visit us. And they're going to stay in some hotel. Then we, we have an ability to capture them, get them into our CRM system. But we also have not just greater share of wallet. We have more hours with them. As you, as you referenced, whether it's a new campground, Camp Cedar, that we're going to be really proud of when it opens this year, uh, or the hotel breakers. You know, we were able to open the hotel breakers uh, in the summer before we opened Cedar Point. And people come and not only come and ride the rides, you know, they come and play on the mile long beach that sits outside of, uh, uh, outside of hotel breakers. So having more time and engaging our customers, getting a deeper relationship with them, having more things we can program during the course of their visit. We think that's both a challenge, but also a great opportunity. So 
You've seen us focus on the on the accommodation segment over the last few years. Last December, we opened up a Spring Hill Suites right outside the front gate of our Carowinds Park here in Charlotte. Um, and now, you know, we've got campgrounds at three properties already, Worlds of Fun, King's Dominion, and, and Carowinds. Now Camp Cedar will be our fourth. We partnered with local investors. Uh, mm-hmm. And we wanted to put that very close to King's Island because of what you call the connectivity. Having that being able to have that seamless integration of the experience within the accommodation and then with the guests coming into the park, uh, anything that makes our, our, our guests have a lot more fun and makes it easier for them to visit is good for us and good for them. Uh, <clears throat> well, as I said, it's a, it's a great idea. I think as our industry matures, I mean, it's hard for me to sit here and look at that picture behind you and think that that park's almost 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hard to believe when we, you know, we opened that 50 years ago, and it's still a thriving, wonderful part of uh, the community, the region, and the industry. Uh, Phenomenal from that standpoint. Uh, Let me ask you this, Rich. Uh, We're, we, because of COVID, everybody had to rethink everything from labor pools to marketing to everything. Uh, How we maintain the uh, how has uh, Cedar looked at the technological side and the advancements that we've seen? For example, we're seeing um, uh, contactless uh, mm-hmm. payments and programs come into effect. We've we are seeing at the front gate different uh, uh, programs where ticket sales literally are ticket booths are almost gone in a lot of parks these days. So from the contactless standpoint and the technology standpoint, what do you think is on the horizon for Cedar Fair and and the parks in that regard? Yeah, Dennis, I'll answer it this way. I think back at what I've seen over the course of this year. I think the pandemic has accelerated, my view, the pandemic has accelerated a lot of trends that were already there. You know, you talk about a better arrival experience. We started focusing on our arrival experience back in uh, you know, the, the mid 2013, 2014, 2015. We built a new gate at Cedar Point. We built a new gate at our Carowinds Park to really modernize that, that yeah. arrival experience. Built a new gate a couple of <clears throat> years later at the Worlds of Fun. So we've tried to think about how we do use technology to, to, to make that arrival experience more seamless. And then to your point, the in-park experience. A lot of the trends that we saw have been accelerated by and, and pushed forward. Some of the things that we had on the drawing board that we were thinking about two, three, five years from now, we're accelerating into the two, three-year time frame, maybe the one, two-year time frame. So, you know, we had gone in the park to redeploying all of our, our new POS stations that had contactless payments, and we just completed that last year. You know, we've looked at technology and, and been running a mobile order, a mobile food ordering test at a handful of parks over the last couple of years. But now we were rethinking that. I called the pandemic the great reset. It, the, the, you know, there's never been a time in my career where the parks weren't open and we could go in and really have deep conversations about how we, how we wanted to evolve the experience and have uh-huh. the time to really work on them and pull forward so many of the things we were talking about. So you know, if you talk to the, the team, we're attacking things on a lot of front, but you'll hear me use this word a lot. We're looking at how we modernize our business. How do we build the capabilities we need to and use technology to make sure we're both providing a better guest experience, but increasingly also how are we improving our employee experience? 
Well, that ties in. We're getting a lot of questions coming in on the board over here. And uh, I'm going to ask you a couple. This one's from uh, Frederico. We've got about 20 countries online right now. And it says labor is always a difficult part of the biz our business. And it gets harder each year to find quality employees, even uh, with the pandemic aside. He says, uh, with so much competition for employment, in your markets, how has the H-1 visa program affected Cedar Fair and your recruiting? All right, great question. Listen, when I think about labor and our need for seasonal labor, you know, one of the beauties, one of the, the real significant parts of our, our business model is we have a small full-time staff that supervises a really large seasonal staff. So, you know, we've got a couple thousand full-time employees throughout all our parks that supervise 45 to 50,000 seasonals in a year time. And when we uh -huh. talk about our seasonal employee population, typically it's only with us for about 90 days. We hire them, we train them, we, we put them out on the, the midway, and then they, they go back to college, they go back to high school, they go back to the places uh, you know, that, that they come to us from because they've got other things in their, in their yeah. world that they're working on. But labor really comes down to us, affordability and availability. And you know, as we've seen, one of the benefits of doing this a, a long time like you have, Dennis, we've seen all parts of the cycle. There's been times where the labor market's been really tight, times when it's been a little more uh, available because of economic factors. You know, where we are right now is I think we all recognize, you know, higher quality guests help us improve the guest, higher quality employees, I'm sorry, help yeah. us really improve the guest experience. So we had over the last two or three years, both because of state mandated or in the case of Canada, province mandated increases in the minimum wage, We'd moved up our wage rates and we're trying to find ways to use the labor we get most productively. We took a, over the last couple of years, a series of markets. We went well above minimum, well above minimum wage because we don't pay yeah. minimum in our markets to attract that higher quality employee. You know, on the technology front, we'd been rolling out a new workforce management system, which gives, which gives our, our supervisors in the field much better tools to, to schedule and manage the labor. So we've accelerated that. We've really, ran, you know, really pushed hard to, to get that program rolled out over the course of this year at all of our parks. So we're trying to, to use technology and tools to use the labor we have most efficiently. And then lastly, I would just say, you know, as we think about it and, and understanding that our true, our true measurement is the NPS score, guest satisfaction, the impact really high quality employees can have on our guest experience. We're, we're rethinking the business model. You know, should we, should all those 45 or 50,000 uh, always be seasonal as we've defined it before. You know, we've taken a couple of parks and we were about to roll out a pilot program this year. Unfortunately, those parks didn't open uh, where we hired a few more full-timers, less seasonals. And not only would they go out and run the rides, but they'd be the casual labor force that we need to mount our events and then strike things like Halloween. So, uh -huh. you know, increasingly we're trying to react to the labor market. And one of the big trends, be it Uber, be it other things that are out there, is an increasing pool of what I'd call casual workers or part-time workers who are looking for a different type of employment experience. If we mm -hmm. can find something where we, we can offer that and it works for them and works for us, I think it'll improve our employee experience. I think, you know, big thing with us and, and all of your, all of the, the, the industry is training. We, we spend a lot of time and effort to train to make sure we keep everybody safe and we provide a, a fun experience. Being able to bring people back year after year and have that 
higher level of, of customer service, real customer service, and then making sure that, you know, we are able to satisfy the guests. I think we'll think about labor differently going forward than we have in the past because of this pandemic. There's a little bit of a follow-up here on one of the questions too. It says, are you doing housing on site like you used to do? And what do you think it, it will be like in the future? Uh, we do. When We've got some parks that have such a, like Cedar Point, that have such a demand for labor. We can't get all yeah. the labor we need in the local markets. So we do house folks. We've got over 3,000 you know, uh, beds at uh, Cedar Point, for instance. We've got dorms, I think, at six of our parks. So we like, and we've built dorms over the last two or three years as part of our labor strategy. So, you know, we, we like that part of the program. We don't, back to the, the question from the, the, from the, the, Frederico. the gentleman from Frederico, yeah. we don't use the H1 program. We use the J1 program. J1. Behind, behind Disney, we're the largest J1 uh, company in, in the country. We work very closely with the State Department on that program. We've been, you know, received awards for how we handle that program. It's been an important part of who we are. This year, that couldn't happen because of the pandemic restrictions. But if that opens up as we think it will going forward, then we'll continue to, to use that as, as a way to supplement our, our, our domestic folks. But what I would say is you know, when, I, when we think about dorms and having more permanent housing on staff, that's really out of market. We increasingly see, Dennis, for domestic folks who want to come work for us and the ability to have uh, beds for them to stay, dorms for them to stay in, lets us access mar markets that we typically wouldn't be able to. So it's been really productive for our business. And then lastly, I'd, I'd like to just say, you know, for everybody who wants to have a career, and we're talking about labor, one of the things yeah. I really enjoy about my role and, and all the roles I've had over the years, mentoring, developing the staff, giving people opportunities to really grow their skills, you know, in, we've partnered with Bowling Green State University this year on a program, the Resort Attraction uh, and Management major. So typically a hospitality major would be focused on hotel management. We've taken and partnered with BGSU on a program that will teach kids the skills needed to be management in our industry. So it's a two-year program major. They'll be housed in downtown Sandusky. Uh, and we will be their laboratory. They'll both get in class, but also internship experience working with us in the field experience. So we're really excited about that program. That just got off the ground this August. We've been working on this for several years. So as I think about the labor market, I do think, and, and I would say to the industry, I think we have to think about how we can, can really create and cultivate the next generation of leadership and make it attractive for people to come into our and give them the skills so they can be successful in our industry. And, and our work with BGSU, it came out of that, that commitment. Well, that's, that's an important part. That's something Jane Cooper and I talked about when Jane was mm -hmm. a guest on, on the show. And she felt very strongly about that as have some of the other, other guests. So we have to continue to, uh, to develop it. And one thing about Cedar Fair, I, known the company forever, as you know, and when I'm contacted by the investment community and the press, and they're asking different questions, the one thing I always stress, or two things I always stress about uh, the company is that it's always been a nose to the grindstone company. You had the greatest margins in the industry for years uh, because it was single focus, it was hard driving, and we saw the results. And uh, 
the other the other comment I tell uh, tell my uh, questionnaires are that <clears throat> you've got great bench strength in the company. You always have had depth, and if you've had to fill something. Uh, rapidly for whatever the reason might have been transition death whatever you've had uh, uh, you've had good bench strength to be able to draw on like a like a strong sports team that's developed their their team well so that's been that's been great and I think uh, I, I think you've done a good job of that let me move over to a few more questions for it okay. because this hour goes very quickly as as you know this is from uh, <clears throat> from Jim. He said, Rich, Richard, the differences in your operations due to the COVID at your wide-ranging facilities really is quite amazing. He said, what a unique, what unique approach did your team use to create a balanced company morale amongst the team members when some were very focused on opening facilities and others have gone for many months without any operations at all? So you've had both well, ends of the spectrum. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, when I go back to the this, this spring and, you know, we knew the best thing we could do for the, for the health of our business would get open. We knew we had to work through some issues to get that done. We also knew we'd have our challenges, Dennis, uh, on the staffing front, not just on the seasonal, but the, the full time. So one of the things that we did was we engaged all the staff across all our sites. And as we opened up parks, Kings Island, uh, as we opened up uh, Cedar Point and others, we started pulling full-time staff from the parks that weren't open. And we, we, we sent them to the parks that were open. They were really excited to be able to, to get a chance to service our guests. They were very excited to see other parks and go work in different environments. We really found that by doing that, it brought everybody closer and really created a, a, a much healthier morale. So it helped we knew we couldn't get everybody open. We wanted to find a way to, to, to give everybody an ability to contribute to, to the success of the company this year. And, and I wanted to stand behind our employees, which we had. You know, we, you know labor is about half of our uh, operating expenses. Seasonal yep. labor is 65 to 70, you know, two thirds of our expense. That goes away when they don't get on the clock. So, so that, that immediately was an impact. But we haven't done any mass furloughs or, or, or layoffs because we wanted to make sure that we stood behind our full-time staff. As I said, you know, we've got a couple thousand people that are the heart and soul and represent the institutional expertise of our company. I wanted to support them and make sure that we did what we needed to do, that there was there, when we got to the other side, we were in great shape to not only reopen the parks, but really find a, uh, go to another level of success with our company. The only way to do that is to really, as you said, keep the depth of the team, make sure that we've got the talent we need and find yeah. a way to get everybody to contribute. We like everybody else, you know, we put on a hiring freeze. We took all the steps we needed to. So if, if, as people started to leave, which they do because they retire or they move to different locales, we didn't replace them immediately, but we're making sure we do everything we, we should be doing to fill the essential roles and keep our business healthy, but keep that core small group that really represents the, the real expertise in our business, that intellectual capacity of our business. <laughs> Moving on, <laughs> I'm gonna go to a couple of more questions. They kind of tie together. One is from Terry and she says, how has the group sales business changed through the years? She says, I recall it used to comprise about 30% of the business, but that was before the pan, even before the pandemic, uh, companies were cutting back, particularly after, uh, the 2000 
7-8 recession. Is Cedar Fair's position on group sales business the same, or what do you see in the future to help offset that decrease in the segment of, of uh, group sales? You know, the group sales channel, the sales channel has always been a big part of who we are, uh, and I think it'll continue to be that in the future. You know, as I said uh, earlier, we've gone into every, almost every one of our facilities and updated and upgraded our commissaries and our catering facilities. That's been an important part of who we are. That specific day business is always the core. I think what has changed over the years is sometimes we thought about group sales more as a distribution channel, selling tickets, getting day tickets through the employee HR in a, in a uh, company. This is really more now about how do we program our youth business in the spring how do we work with companies like some of those fine companies in Cincinnati that come out to us every year in September? Yeah. Keep the health of our specific day business. It is important. You know, yeah. depending on the park, it's 15 to 25% of our business, but roughly overall uh, in that range, again, season pass about half of our business. When you think about group sales, it's a, it's a different kind of customer. We've always been good at understanding the needs of the customer and then customizing our experience to make sure we could, find a way to, to create value for them on the other side. You know, as much as some employers are cutting back, you've got others throughout the country that are hiring like there's no tomorrow because their business is booming. So this is in this bifurcated economy. We've seen com yeah. some companies do really well and others that are struggling. So there's still opportunity out there in group sales. Well, this one speaks to uh, kind of the next segment. It says, Obviously, your season pass programming has been uh, done very well. It's, it's been affected by COVID, we would expect. This is from Thomas. He says, you had rolled out your pass perks loyalty uh, program back in 2019. Yet in your third quarter results, you said that your season pass base had increased by 5% mm -hmm. and that you have about a million eight 100,000 season pass outstanding through 21. It says, how are the season pass programs changing and how is the loyalty pass adhering and working? Well, the season pass program, again, because of the value, really has been driven our growth, the value embedded in the season pass. When we think about pass perks, a really important part of our program. Uh, that's the customer loyalty program we rolled out a, a few years ago. We've used that to put to stay engaged with our customer, even at parks that, that weren't open. We were rolling out offers from third parties that got a lot of traction and got a lot of response from our, our consumers. So during the, the time we weren't open, Kelly Semmelroth, our CMO and her team, really tried to take find a way to create value and stay engaged with the customer, give them a reason to, to stay engaged, you know. One of the things we did on the season pass program immediately in April, early April, was we pivoted and said, listen, we're going to make sure that, that people get the value for what they thought they bought in 2020. And given the uncertainty in open our parks, we immediately said the 2020 season passes would be good for all the way through 2021. That was mm -hmm. really our commitment to our customer to make sure they get value out of what they purchase. And to date, we've had less than one half of 1% request for refund. So we're We've kept 99 and oh, better than 99% of our customers, which I think is both amazing, strong. but I'm really, really proud of because it says our customers are staying with us. Well, that comes back to my earlier connectivity and loyalty aspect, <clears throat> which you guys have, which has been amazing. I mean, truly. Uh, here's one from Marcelo. He says, uh, 
Ricardo, <laughs> Richard, I guess. <laughs> he says, other chains have focused on international expansion, but Cedar has chosen to focus on diversification with sports parks, etc., and with adding hotels. Why have you not expanded internationally? And second, how has the sports park and the hotels changed the Cedar Fair business? I think maybe you answered a little bit of that, but uh, the international, uh, I think, is the focus of that question. Yeah, that was, <clears throat> listen, Dennis, you know, under Matt, we met under myself. We've looked at our portfolio and we think we have such tremendous growth opportunities here. That's where we put our focus. We thought that we had an ability to grow substantially and that if we did, uh, you know, our unit holders who I ultimately work for would be rewarded. So the, our focus had been domestic because we thought there was so much opportunity there. I'll take the second part of the question, if I could, and talk about the sports yeah. park. You know, why do I keep doing this? How do I think about the business? Why am I still here? And what do I think Cedar Fair stands for? Yeah, I'd wrap it up in... in, in in a tagline that kind of goes like this. I think what we stand for is happy guests, empowered employees, and prosperous communities. And for me, you, you know, you reference trying to tie back all the pieces of my background. I've always believed that our industry is a tremendous economic development tool and that we can make our communities more prosperous. The sports center came out of that. We partnered with uh, the, the city of Sandusky and Erie County to create a sports complex. We knew time poverty was a challenge the overscheduled family was in today's America was one of the reasons they couldn't come to us. We knew they were going somewhere else to go to J.O. volleyball tournaments, baseball tournaments yeah. with, with their with their teen kids. We located that facility close to us and we wanted to build a facility that was top shelf. We're a high quality operator. We believe in high quality experience. The sports center up in Sandusky is just an amazing facility. And it, it hosts, we've now got an outdoor complex and an indoor complex. What that does is bring uh, folks to the community all through the four seasons and brings them closer to our park. So part of what you get with the registration to the sports center is a ticket to Cedar Point. So over the course of the year, and then when you add in the moms and dads and sisters and brothers who come with the, the team that plays, mm -hmm. that, that's building a pipeline for people to come and make it more than just a two-day tournament. They can stay three or four days and make it a, a truly a, a vacation experience. It really creates a critical mass, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, an attachment mm -hmm. onto what you what you're already doing. I, I think then, that's great. And then in our in our case, Dennis, you know, we've got uh, loads of hotel rooms there in, in Cedar Point, so we also are able to both house them but get them into our CRM system. So now we've got another email address, another customer that we can reach out to to stay engaged with. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it makes sense. Tangentially, it makes sense and it keeps exponentially growing. Here's one more. Uh, this is from Barry. It says, uh, Richard, short-term events like Grand Carnival and food festivals have become a staple in the parks in recent years. How has that changed the business model and do they drive more seasonal pass visits and or are you seeing new consumers come to the parks from these types of festivals and events? In other words, are you getting people that you didn't get before, I think? So really good question, really smart question. You know, for our business to be healthy, we've got to drive not only season pass holders, Dennis, we've got to drive what we call unique visitors, those new customers. So yeah. as I look at 2019 and we look at, we rolled out Grand 
Carnival. We rolled out the Monster Jam event, rolled out the Taste events like Boysenberry Festival at Knott's. We were not only up in attendance, but we were up 6% in unique visitors in 2019. You know, that was after a couple of years of being kind of flat, maybe up 1%. We really got traction in 2019. When I said we had momentum, we were up in unique visitors. We're up in season pass holders. We're hiring in park spending. One of the things I'm most proud of this year is mm -hmm. even, in, even in COVID times, we're up mid-teens, and you've heard this from others in the industry, mid-teens in our in-park spending, particularly food and beverage. So the folks who were coming to our parks were spending more in-park because we gave them more value. You know, so when I think about you know, that importance of unique visitors, Dennis, it's kind of like store <laughs> traffic for the retail. If you don't get yeah. your store traffic up, you don't, you, you're not acquiring new customers. Our event strategy, particularly things like the winter holiday event, was really meant to appeal to a multi-generational uh, customer and broaden the appeal of our experience. We don't want to be more narrow. We want to be broader in our appeal. You know, Matt, we met coined the phrase, we want to be more than a place to ride rides. I endorse that, and I think we're taking it to a different place. We use our parks as a platform, and the events are programming. You'll always have the great rides, the food and beverage. Increasingly, you'll see us with the events, tailor our experience, be it Halloween or, or winter holiday or Grand Carnival, but also customize our food and beverage offering to that event. We found that to be a very successful formula. Shifting gears a little bit here, operationally, a couple of questions are coming in. This one is from another Thomas. It says, when the parks first opened, did you sense any fear among guests coming back from them, he said, do you think that they felt safe and secure? And what did you notice differently about their actions in the park? And what did they react? I think I know the answer to this most uh, difficultly to of the, I, they were talking about distancing and capacity yep. and masks and things like that. So what we saw, first off, as we opened up, we knew there'd be a, a demand from our season pass holders. So at the parks we opened up with, we, we, we took a number of days and had it season pass holders only. Then we opened to the public. So over the uh -huh. course of being open from, you know, mid-June, early July on our bigger parks, mid-June at our Texas and Missouri parks, we saw the, the attendance trends start to increase and pick up. We saw the people who were coming, Dennis, were comfortable coming out. So I would say people self-selected. You've got to go through a health screening. We take your temperature at the front gate. We found ways to put in all of the protocols that we needed to. Those who came out were comfortable coming out. Over time, I think what happened was there was great word of mouth. The experience was a good experience. Limited capacity meant there was an ability to move around the site without being worried about bumping into other people. So I think the, the quality of the experience and the fact that people came out and gave us credit for operating safely, we became the place they could go in the community that was outdoors, where they could have fun and they could spend time with their family and friends and not have the same worries about the pandemic that maybe they would had they gone to an indoor facility. So they self-selected early, great word of mouth. What, what was different was, and, and by the way, the guests were very well behaved. You know, I talked to Tim Fisher, our COO, constantly about what are we seeing, what are we hearing? And I've got to tell you, for the most part, except for a handful of, of minor, what I would call minor issues, we really had guests that were well behaved. I would say the the mask wearing was probably the biggest flashpoint yeah. early, but that died down very quickly as we went through the summer. So I think we don't operate in a vacuum. The environment changed around us. People 
became accustomed to going places and wearing masks. And I think that that started to die down. We were also very firm in making sure that when you were in our site that we respectfully came up to you, made sure you, you did wear your mask. So we're very firm on our standards. And I think that gave good word of mouth and that kept people coming back. Well, that's kind of the mask is a hitch on question from somebody else. Mm -hmm. They want to know how long you think people are going to be wearing masks that are coming to amusement and theme parks uh, around the world. You know, I, it, I will tell you what I tell the folks on Wall Street all the time. My crystal ball is cloudy. Here's what I do know. I, I view the pandemic more closely as something like what we saw in 9-11, Dennis. After 9-11, there were a lot of things we did. Some of them stayed and some of them faded away. I think it's going to be the same thing here with all of the protocols that, that are with pandemic. Some will stay with us and some will move away. And so I think as the environment changes around us, you know, we're constantly working with our, with our outside experts in the health field, constantly working with the local health and state health authorities. We'll follow their lead. But what I'm really proud of, and I think we touched on this earlier, you know, they hold us up as the model in Ohio and other places of how other industries should do. I yeah. don't think all these, I don't think all of the pandemic protocols will be with us forever, but I do think some will stick because the consumer will want them to stick. We always say, whether it's when do you take out a ride or when do you put in a new program, we try and listen to our guests and we evolve our experience. You know, the guests will tell you when, when it's time to take out an attraction because they stop riding it. So yeah, it's, that, it's, it's that simple. Well, I think too, I think uh, our industry and, and the world for that, that matter is going to follow the practices and, and implementations of 911. Uh, we have, our lives changed the way we travel, move uh, through airports, air, airplanes, et cetera. And those things 20 years later are still with us. So there are going to be things that stay with us that uh, come out of this uh, pandemic as well. You know, Jeff, let me just finish my thought on this. I didn't reference this, but if you go back to 2003, go back to our experience up in Toronto, there was the SARS outbreak out in 2003. So our yes. folks up in Canada had to deal with that for a year. It impacted attendance a little bit. I think we were down mid single digits for that year. Attendance came back the next year. Some of the things we did to, that the, we worked with the government on in 2003 uh, went away and attendance came back. So the business model is healthy. But I will also say we, our starting point on everything we did this year, we went back and pulled out everything that we did in 2003 for SARS up in Toronto and had the Toronto team school us. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was really, really helpful for us. It gave us a head start. You had a primer. Yep. That's amazing. Uh, here's another one, Rich. It says, in what ways, we're jumping around, but this is the way the questions are coming in. So I apologize, but we're kind of moving from operations to different areas. It says, in what ways has Cedar Fair had to find ways to cut costs that you might not have other uh, done otherwise in the past, specifically the cost cutting that did not impact the guest satisfaction or the front of the house? You know, we, we've, we've over several years, we've been really focused on, as I said earlier, using labor as efficiently as we can. We, for several years, had a workforce optimization committee that we stocked with our really up-and-coming staff, the, the folks that we had targeted to BGMs. They rolled out a series of programs. We've taken cash out of the game system, you know, gone to cashless games. We've gone mm -hmm. to cash recyclers in the back, back of house. So now instead of getting a, a Brinks truck or, you know, an armored truck filled with cash every day and depositing that, we recycle all that cash in the parks. But increasingly, 
we, we looked at where back of house administrative, how can we take out and make that far more efficient and funnel more labor? We've gone up in hours in food and beverage, funnel to where the yeah. guests get a lot more value and we get an opportunity to service the guests better. So, you know, more transact, we, we built several food facilities that are higher volume. They use less labor, they produce higher quality food, but they produce a lot more transactions per hour. So I think investing in things, be it facilities, be it technologies, that lets you really become far more efficient administratively, where there's not a lot of value to the guest, and focus your, your dollars, whether it's capital or OPEX, on those things that give the guest more value. You know, the events that, I'll go back to the event strategy, Dennis, it's a little heavier in OPEX, it's a little lighter in, in CAPEX, we're not afraid to spend a little more on the guest experience to achieve that, that quality experience. Well, we know, it's, I think it's been the same basically from when we started. 50% uh, of our revenue comes at the front gate mm -hmm. and the other 50 comes inside. And F&B is the largest, uh, largest segment of the, of the internal per capita spend. So uh, in the early years, we didn't do such a good job with our food and beverage. We served a hamburger and a sweaty hamburger, I would say, in a styrofoam box. And uh, today that's changed. People like to eat in a theme park. And uh, some of that comes through branding and some of that comes through the improvements the internal programs have put in the parks. And I think you guys have done a good job on both, both sides of that, frankly. So that, that's well. great. Thank you, Dennis. And let me say, listen, I'm really proud of the culinary talent we brought in and we keep bringing in. Did I ever think we'd have a James Beard award winning chef at Kings Island? No, I didn't, but we do. I know. Yeah, that was a great announcement when that went out. That was that really was a great announcement for, for the industry. <clears throat> Here's another one. This is comes in from uh, China. It says, Mr. Mr. Zimmerman, <laughs> where do you personally see the hot spots in the coming years in terms of development and growth. A lot of the markets in the U.S., as we know, have been saturated. Where do you feel the industry sees its best growth uh, in the future? You know, I, I think that really goes back to the question we talked about before. You know, we see a lot of opportunity for growth here domestically within our own park portfolio. Um, but when I look internationally, and I do follow things internationally, I do think there will be attractive opportunity in the emerging markets as those economies strengthen. So where you've got a growing middle class, there will always be opportunities. So from my perspective, I think the development hotspots will be those places where the economies are growing fast and there's an increasing middle class. You know, as you look at the last two or three years, I referenced, you know, how, how, how we did well and the industry did well here in the U.S., the economy, prior to the pandemic, the economy was doing well. It was benefiting all parts of the segment. You know, we talked about, Dennis, uh, the, the business model being resilient. That's both here in the U.S., but also internationally. It's a great business model where, where the local economies are doing well. We've got an ability to tap into that and build something that, that is highly desirable, has a lot of appeal to the consumer. Uh, and we get, you know, as, as we talked about, those loyal customers year after year. We're, we're almost up on the hour, another, another fast hour, and we've got 30 more questions that are, that are coming in. What we typically do, Richard, is we'll send these to you, somebody on your staff, they'll get with you when you have some time. And if you would be kind enough to give us a brief answer yep. on 
some of the remaining questions, what we do is then we we print those over the next few days in our ITPS mail. So uh, and, happy, and people happy to do that. Happy they, to do that. get their response. Let me get to two more real quick. When it says, uh, so how long, Richard, do you think it will take closed parks to get back up to speed to where they were in 2019, like a normal winter closing or more time? Uh, with more time for cleaning, testing, and staffing. In other words, getting the parks prepared once they've been closed. You know, I think I think of this as a, a fairly normal off season. So, you know, all of our parks are shut down right now, except uh, Kings Dominion and, and, and Carowinds, and they're doing the winter holiday tasting event. Once you get into January, it's a typical January. We're gonna look at our calendars again, monitor the environments out there. We, we think we'll be opening our parks probably a little later in the spring than we typically would, given what's going on with the pandemic. But yeah. we'll be ready by late spring. You know, we'll be ready to open all of our parks. Our, our watchword, my, my catchphrase, I want to open as many parks as we can as soon as we can. But as soon as we can depends on the environment. What we got out of this year is we, we got great credibility, not just with, the, with our guests. We talked about that, Dennis, but with state and local authorities that we could open up and operate safely. That's going to let us open next year far easier and f make sure that we can get open when we want to. So uh, I'm really, I can't stress enough how much that credibility with our state and local partners is important to answering the question of when can we open? Well, we're up on the hour. We're actually a little past. I've got one more question. It says, um, what's been, Richard, what's been the most memorable experience you've had uh, in, in your career both at Madison Square Gardens and in the amusement parks? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a great question and, and very difficult to answer. I think of, of you know, the, the fun I've had always being the first person in the company to ride every new ride, uh, which is really a thrill and an honor. But I think about things where we've really impacted the community. So whether it's a Madison Square Garden or here, uh, oddly enough, one, one of the things that I remember is the ice bucket challenge that Matt, we met and I did yeah. on, the, on the slingshot, as you know, well, we challenge you, uh, you, the challenge. you know, doing something that, that, that shows who we are, commitment to the community. I think about those things more than I think about, you know, the, the thrill of getting to, to ride the new ride, which is always a lot of fun, but always something like fun. the ice bucket challenge, well, <clears throat> I will put, I will put way up there in, in, in my, in my books. That was a great one. Well, look, Rich, we, I'd love to spend more time with you. And based on the number of participants we or attendees we have and the number of questions, I hope that uh, you'll join us in 2021 when things uh, start moving the uh, positive direction a little bit more. Uh, and, and, and we'd love to have you back to just kind of replay some, some of these questions and see what, what the difference is. That's happy to do that. I'll leave you and your, your, your viewers with this. I've probably never been more optimistic about the future of our business. I think, yes, we have our challenges, but I think what we learned this year is a resiliency, a flexibility that, you know, that, that COVID has taught us in the pandemic. I think there's every reason for us to be optimistic about the future of our business. And I do think when we get to the other side of the pandemic, the demand we see will say will be a testament and a testimony to the quality of the experience that our industry and that Cedar Fair has always provided. So Dennis, thank you for your yeah. time. <laughs>
Richard, thanks for being my guest. Uh, you've re really been great. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. It's the largest audience we've ever had. We're over 300 people right now, and people will be coming on later. Uh, we've seen messages saying, how do we get the, uh, the transcript? I just like to finish every, uh, every uh, I'm for Fun podcast with a couple of messages. If we uh, can't have fun, uh, how can we sell fun? It's a fun business and we have to we have to be serious about it, but we have to have fun. And we're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time. And uh, what a great industry you and I both know we work in, Richard. Uh, what do we do? We don't uh, pollute the streams. We don't put smoke in the skies. At the end of the days, what do we do? We put smiles on people's faces and we build memories that last a lifetime. So with that, again, thank you, Richard. I'll talk to Thanks, you soon. Ben. Okay. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today.